You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hey River, good morning, good morning. I hope you recovered from your sugar coma. How many of you ate more sweets than you really should have this weekend? Yeah, me too. I, uh, I'm grateful my wife, you know, I, kind of our, our little tradition has been she'd always make cherry cheese pie for Christmas. She's like, I'm not making it this year because we got more than enough cookies and stuff. It just, they multiply, you know, it's on the counter and then you come down the next morning, you're like, there's more. I'm like, what have you guys been doing overnight? It just, it just keeps multiplying. So I trust you had a good Christmas. Trust Santa was good to you. If not, I guess you got, what, 363 days to get it squared away for next year, you know. It's why I like Jesus more than Santa, because Jesus gives us based on what he did. Santa only gives us based on what we do. So, you know, I'd rather take grace in what our Lord Jesus does all day long. But anyway, take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. When we look here in just a few minutes at chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church and they had some relationship funk going on. They just had some just not so good things happening. And Paul's having to write to them to, to work through some of that junk. Every relationship, and I'm not just thinking of romantic relationships, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouses, but anything. It can be, you know, between uh, adult kids and their parents, it can be with coworkers, it could be with your boss, it could be friends, neighbors, just relations as we relate to people. It's a normal part of that process, of that growth process, that they get stuck sometimes. And depending on how we handle it, we either make it worse or we begin to unstick it. One of my kids bought a, a truck a, a year or so ago, and uh, it, it was a, a used vehicle. And, uh, and it came with a hitch on it, and the receiver in it was, was rested in place. You know, the ball was there in the receiver, and I don't know why the, the guy that owned it before, woman whomever, didn't take it out, but they didn't. So it was rested in place. So uh, my son finally got around, like, okay, I'm going to try to get that thing out of there. So, you know, a couple of days, two or three days of penetrating oil, you know, to kind of hopefully begin loosening it up, working it out, and and took a little uh, tool trying to get down in there and loosen it, and began hitting it and that kind of thing. And after a couple of days, it went nowhere. I mean, nowhere. And uh, I watched him out there working just faithfully on it, and I finally kind of joined him one afternoon and said, let's look at this thing, son. And we kind of went for broke because we didn't want to hit the ball because we didn't want to damage it, wanted to reuse it. But then it was one of those things like, okay, it's either coming all the way off or not. And so we kind of went for broke, and finally we got the right technique, and had to lay down under the truck with a sledgehammer, hit, you know, the, the nut from the ball comes down underneath it with a big, um, you know, a big nut there. And just, I mean, just wailing on it with all that I could and then hand it to him because I got tired and he'd wail on it and hit it in. And finally, after about an hour of that, we managed to get it out and it was, was free. A mistake that we often make in our relationships is treating them that way, that when they get stuck, we think somehow if we just hit it a little bit harder, if I just get my point across, if I just, you know, dig in and, and hit that thing, it'll loosen up. Well, it doesn't work that way, does it? I want to talk about six steps that really, if you will follow these, may help your relationship wherever you're kind of stuck may help loosen that. And by that, I don't, I'm not talking about necessarily relationships that are bad. These aren't six steps to just have a great relationship or you know, work through that. But sometimes we get into those situations, well, do we talk about it, do we not? Sometimes we bump into things, or we hit a roadblock, and we're just kind of 
stuck. We need to work through them. So this isn't just about necessarily bad relationships. In fact, the healthier your relationship is, the better this is going to work. But six things that we're going to talk about today. So, and, and this isn't going to be an hour. So this is not, oh my goodness, Sean, you're buckling with six things. You only do three. There's like six legit steps here. We're going to go faster, but read with me if you would. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says this in verse 2. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. For we have wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort and all our affliction. I'm overflowed with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting within and fear, or fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comfort us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, there's the funk. <laughs> even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. We're going to talk a little bit past that, but I'm going to stop there for now. Hey, pray with me, would you guys? Father, I'm grateful for the Christmas season. And Lord, I'm grateful that your word is sufficient. That whatever we need in life, that we can not only trust it, but it covers the topics sufficiently to give us what we need. Lord, thank you that you're a relational God, that you restored a relationship, a broken relationship through sin when we trust Jesus as Lord. And Father, we, we have, you adopt us as your children. You give us a home and a hope and a future, and we know you. And Father, you teach us as your children how to relate with others on this earth. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to unpack these things and the principles for them. Thank you, Lord, for these truths, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible is a book, first and foremost, about relationships. I don't mean the, the latest little blog, you know, do these three things and everything will be great. But it's a book about how we have a relationship with God in heaven and how God has restored that relationship through Jesus. And we talked about that with the Christmas and God sending His Son and Easter is, you know, Him dying on the cross ultimately for our sins. But it's all about how God is establishing a relationship with us as people through His Son Jesus dying for us on the cross and then how we relate to one another on this earth. It's really a book about relationships. Followers of Jesus should be relationship experts. We, we should get it, and we should know how to do this better than most. And we struggle just like everyone else, but I love that we can turn to God's Word and, and rely on it. It just teaches us the stuff that we need to know. As Paul is writing to this church, things had gotten crosswise, trying to understand the background of this. There were, apparently there was at least one person, maybe multiple people, that were attacking Paul 
Paul was away from this church that he had started, and they were, they were trash-talking and talking bad stuff about Paul, and, and it was stirring those people up to thinking those bad things, and it created drama and relational damage. And so Paul wrote him a letter before this one to address those things, and it grieved them. It, it pained them. It, it caused pain. And Paul's like, oh, maybe I wrote a little too strong of a letter. Can you imagine? It's not like texting today. There's no instant. You know, he writes a letter and, you know, weeks later it finally gets there. And all the while it's like, oh, no, did I say it too strong? Was it too hard? Do they understand? And then he's waiting weeks later to hear back. And so he's like, I grieved a little bit at first. Like, oh, no, I was a little bit too tough. But whew, when I heard back that it actually helped and you guys realized what was going on and you turned away from where you were and, and got things straightened out, I am so joyed by that. So six quick steps that I want to share with you about how to, how to get relationships, how to work through when, they, when we get stuck like that. The first thing is, is we have to decide to engage. Step one is, is we got to decide to not just ignore it. Paul was hundreds of miles away from this church, and he could have just said, whatever, I'm, you know, they can think what they want. I know what the truth is. He could have blown them off. He could have turned his back on it. He could have ignored it. But instead, he chose to engage. Instead, he chose to do the harder thing, to try to, try to address it. You see, some of, some of us grew up in homes, and when issues surfaced and there were problems, you just kind of go through the argument or the heat of the moment, and then when it's over, you act as if it didn't happen and you just go on in life. And it never gets addressed. And then that almost that same issue and that same fight happens over and over and over again. And it tends to escalate over time. And eventually it brings the relationship to a point where it completely is broken and, and there is no hope in that. Some of you grew up in relationships and some of us grew up in homes where things would come to just a boil. I mean, just uh, uh, not just so much ignored and just move on, but just it would come to a knockdown, drag out fight. And what we're discovering, and with Paul, is we see what he, the way he approached this stuff with the church, is there's a, a not necessarily a middle road, but there's a third option at the table. And, and Paul chose to engage because he knew if he didn't address the situation, if he didn't speak to it in some way, that it wasn't going to go away. You know, my son could have ignored the hitch on his truck and just say, well, I hope one day that it's going to, I'm going to come out and it's going to be loose and I can just, you know, take it out. And it doesn't happen. When we're in these relationships, whether it's our parent trying to deal with a kid, how do I work through this with my teenage kid? When it's us trying to work through other situations, maybe even us address it with a boss, certainly we're, there's going to be some differences in how those are handled, but just ignoring it, never solves it. So what God tells us actually in His Word regularly, because God doesn't ignore our junk and our sin. That's why He sent Jesus to die on the cross. And in fact, He tells us that if we've been offended, we're to go to our brother and talk to them. And, and, and when we discover that, we're supposed to work through those things. The first step in any of these things, when you're stuck in that situation, is to decide to engage. Second step. Just check your heart. Look what Paul says. He says in verse 2, he says, Make rooms in your hearts for us. Make, make room. But then he addresses where he is. He says, he's looking in, at his own heart and he's sharing with them the realities of where he's coming from. And he says, look, we have wronged nobody, no one. 
We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I'm not saying this to condemn you. In other words, I'm not saying this to get on you or criticize you. I'm, I, I've said it before. You're in our hearts. We love you is what he's telling us. He said, guys, we're willing to live and die together for you. Up earlier in, six, in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. We've spoken freely to you and our heart is open. When you decide to engage, before you open your mouth, before you send that text, which by the way, when the stakes are high, don't text. Phone call is better than texting. Face-to-face -face is better than a phone call. You, can, you, know, you can't always be face-to-face. -face. Sometimes you've got to deal with what you need to deal with, but texting is like bottom of the list of what we should do. But once you decide to engage, we need to check our heart first. Before we communicate anything, we need to examine to see what's on the inside. Paul did that. As Paul was writing them, he says, look, guys, we've exa I've examined. We, we really have not corrupted anybody. We're not attacking you. Actually, we, we love you. You're in our hearts. See, what happens when relationships get stuck, we tend to lash out in, out of insecurity, out of anger or, or hatred in that moment or pain or whatever, and we're really in a self-protective mode. Rather than really trying to work through the issue and, and rather than value, valuing the relationship and the other person, we really are protecting ourselves. We really are getting back. And we're coming out of a place of bitterness or frustration or anger, and we end up just releasing all of that toward the other person. And it's kind of like pouring gas on a fire. It escalates the whole thing. What Paul did is he demonstrates to us is that we should examine our motives in our heart. Why are we trying to reach out to this person? You see, if we really care about that other individual, I don't care whether they have caused us deep pain or they have wronged us, our job is to actually love them enough to do what's best for them. And what's best for them is not you and me just sitting back and ignoring everything, but it's you and me speaking up and reaching out appropriately, but doing it in a way that is not self-protective, that's not to, to further our gain in this world, but instead is to do it for their benefit. Now, reality is, is these six steps, we all will struggle to do them. None of us will do them perfectly and well. And I'm just like you guys. Sometimes I leap before I look. Sometimes I speak in that moment. But if the more we can step back and the more that we can examine our motives, understand underneath why we're hurt and be able to articulate those things, the more we're able to discern what's going on, the better in a position we're going to be able to be to unstick things. You see, when that hitch was stuck, we could wail on it this way or that way. And be honest with you, it wasn't until we realized to do the opposite of what we wanted to do, actually to hit it in farther, which was easier to do than hit it out. It kind of broke it loose, and then we could hit it out. And then we'd hit it in more, and we'd bang it out, using our brains a little bit more. And instead, when we think about relationship with others, sometimes we need to do the opposite of what we instinctively want to do, which is just to reach out and lash out and you know, address something. And instead, we need to step back and allow God to speak into our heart and really discern the motives of why we're reaching out. That's step two.
Step number three is we need to convey our love for that person. Convey our commitment. You see, Paul says, Paul is here. He's, he's being accused of some awful stuff. I don't know how much it hurt him or not. He didn't convey that. I'm assuming that he was offended in some way. I'm assuming that it bothered him. I'm assuming that it troubled him deeply. I mean, he's taken a lot of time to work through these things, but he doesn't speak out of that. He speaks out of a place of security. He speaks out of a place that he's of forgiveness. He speaks out of a place that God who forgave him, that he in turn could turn around and offer that to others. And instead, he's, he conveys love to them and a commitment and a safe space, if you will. See, some of us, it's hard to convey that to, to those around us. Now, obviously, the way you might convey that love or commitment to your spouse is very different than you would to your boss, you know, you, I hope your relationship is different, you know, in that situation. Unless you are married to your, your spouse is your boss, then that's a whole other animal, and I'll just, I'll pray for you. I don't know how to help you in that situation. But regardless, you need to convey that. And sometimes we get in this mode, well, they should know I love them. They should know I'm committed to them. Well, yeah, they should, but they also, you should tell them that. You know, God didn't in heaven sit there and say, well, they should know I love them. Look, I gave them sunshine. I gave them a beautiful beach to enjoy. Yeah, they get winter, but they get spring and summer too. I love them. They should know that. How often does God make a big deal to remind us that He loves us and He tells us that? So after you've committed to speak into that and not ignore it, after you've checked your heart and really looked in your motivation and getting your heart squared away, Till you get that heart squared away where it should be, you don't speak, you don't say a thing because you're going to only pour gasoline on it. Once you get to that place where you can address things appropriately, convey your love, convey your commitment. Help them to understand where you're coming from is not the lashing out. See, often when those things get stuck, everybody kind of marshals the, you know, for self-protection and, and all of that. And you actually are flipping that whole conversation when you come at them in a way that says, I'm here for you, and I care about this relationship. I care about the situation. I care about us more than I care about me. So share that in a way that makes sense. If that makes you uncomfortable, then get over it at some level. Figure out a way to, to communicate that. Fourth thing, notice that I didn't start out by dealing with the issue. We're down at step four. The fourth thing that Paul does is he addresses, he confronts the issue, but you, you've got to speak to the issue and you speak to the issue well. You see, if you've not addressed your heart, then when you speak and you begin to engage, there's going to be some poison mixed into the water coming up out of that well. When you turn the tap water on in your house, I don't care if you have a well or if you have municipal water, whatever, wherever your water source is, you don't get to choose what comes out of that well. You just get to choose whether you open the tap or not. You see, when you and I open our mouth, it's just like you and me turning the water faucet on. And what's on the inside is going to come out. That's why you've got to deal with your heart first before you open your mouth and share. If you've got bitterness down in your heart, if you've got anger and, and frustration and all of that, it's going to come out and it's not going to be helpful. But when you've worked through all of that and you've checked that and God has spoken your heart and you've, you've addressed the, your side of the conversation, your issues in the middle of it, then you can convey that love and then you can deal with the issue and you're not trying to protect yourself and you're not trying to hit the other person. See, Paul, 
Paul, when he spoke to them, he wrote to them about the issue. He let the issue be the issue. Now, we don't know exactly what went down, but it's obvious Paul is like, you guys are, there's somebody that was doing something that was stirring the church up and causing them to be against Paul. And Paul's like, look, we haven't, we truly have not done anything wrong here. He wasn't, defend, he wasn't being defensive as much as he was addressing the reality of things. So in that moment, when you've kind of gone to those, dealt with those first three things, then you're in a place where you can address whatever the issue really is, whatever you're is stuck, whatever the problem is, whatever the crux to the situation is. And when you do it, you, you, don't, you don't address your own points. You don't speak to your points. You don't speak to all of your stuff. You let the issue be the issue and you confront on that end. You confront it. You deal with it. You don't ignore it. You don't sidestep it. You don't minimize it. You speak forthrightly. You speak clearly. But you speak to that issue. Paul, when he was writing to them, he talked to them through those things. We don't know exactly what he wrote to them. But when he, he wrote, it hit home. He says, guys, in verse 8, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. No, I did regret it for a while. In other words, I thought, ooh, maybe I was too, too strong, too forthright or whatever. But he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. See, Paul spoke to the issue, and it caused them pain. If you're unwilling to cause that other person pain, then you really can't unstick that relationship. Now, here's the difference. You and I are comfortable causing pain when we're trying to protect ourselves. We'll lash out, and it's really defending ourselves. But instead, when Paul caused pain, he was more like the physician, more like the, the surgeon. This is going to hurt for that person's good, more than just wailing on that person to make them feel, make himself feel better. You and I, when we speak and address the issue, if we're afraid for that other person to feel any kind of pain, and this might be more in, in some situations, like sometimes parents struggle for their kids to feel pain. Maybe sometimes as adult kids, we struggle for mom and dad to feel pain. But what Paul is doing is, he's like, guys, when I confront the issue, I knew it was going to hurt. I knew you were going to grieve. I knew there was going to be sorrow. But he did it because ultimately it was for their best interest. Not protecting himself. Not His goal wasn't to lash out and hurt them, to get resentment or revenge somehow in the middle of it. But instead, to point out the issue, what they were doing that was wrong, to confront those issues and to confront the impact of what they were doing and how much trouble it was stirring up or allowing because they weren't handling it well. And in poking at that, he knew that it was going to cause them pain. He knew that it was going to be difficult. Now keep in mind, this was going through a letter. There's, this wasn't exactly something I was planning on bringing out, but sometimes you and I, when we get in the heat of the moment and the crush and the rush of things, we just want to address it and deal with it then. This is over a period of weeks this conversation is running forward. 
sometimes you and I do need to step back and not just respond immediately and because this takes time to work through this stuff well. But if you and I are going to genuinely help a person who is messed up or messing up and the closer they are to us, the closer in relationship, the closest possible is a spousal relationship and somewhere along with kids in the home. I mean, just people that you live with, right? And then it kind of goes from there. But the closer those relationships are, the more pure our conversation needs to be. The more we need to check our motives, the more we need to check our own heart and let God address our own sin issues and our own issues that we've gotten all of that before we go to them. Because if that person begins to smell that they're just being attacked by us, are we genuinely in a place to help them? No. If a doctor has a scalpel in his hand at me and I meet him in an alleyway and he comes swinging at me, I don't think he's there to help me. I don't care if he just operated on my wife and you know made her better two days before. I'm like, I don't trust you right now, man. And there might be somebody that we love, but if they're just swinging at us, we're going to defend ourselves. So we have to really examine our heart and make sure that we're coming at them in a way that brings health and healing and speaks to the issue rather than attacking them. And then when we do and we confront the issue, then they're able to better discern that we're not attacking them, that we really are trying to work through stuff and we're conveying our mistakes where we've messed up and owning them and conveying our commitment to them and just a commitment to work it out and they're in a much better place to receive it. And that leads us to step number five, I think. Step five is give them space. expect people to turn on a dime. You see, how, how does this thing work? How does your emotions work? When things happen to you, your brain perceives things in a certain way, and the emotions release those chemicals and flood that into your body. And you don't overcome that immediately. So when we come addressing the issue, we're addressing a person's soul, we're speaking to their heart, but we're speaking to their mind, and their mind ultimately is the one that has to realize, oh no, I have really messed up in the middle of it. And so all of a sudden, they can still feel like frustration and anger and all that chemical emotion stirring in their heart, but at the same time begin feeling like I have blown it and I've messed up. And it can release a love like, oh, I love you, and where it can create all kinds of stuff in the middle of all of that. And instead, we need to back up and give them space. Now, Paul was forced into that situation because he was busy writing letters, but he wrote a letter, and they talked about it as a church. It was an open conversation, and they processed it and all of that, and it grieved them for a short season. But there now, they heard back. They heard back, and Paul heard that they had heard back, and he sends them this letter that we're reading now because he had, in nature, he was forced to give them space to process all of those things. Now, here's the deal. When you and I confront that issue, we should not expect that person to immediately just turn on a dime. Immediately. Whenever somebody comes and confronts you, do you automatically, every single time, oh, yep, you're 100% right, I totally blew that. You don't. Sometimes we do, but not always. Sometimes we have to step back, God, oh, I don't want to hear that, but they're right. Sometimes we have to process those things. And when we step back and give them space to respond, 
What Paul, what we're looking for and we're praying for is that they would have a godly grief, not a worldly grief. Look what the Bible talks about. Paul says, I, I rejoice in verse 9, because, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. That's what we want, salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. When you've done those first five steps well, you've checked your heart, you've waded into the situation for that other person's benefit, and you've conveyed the best you know how to genuinely that you're committed to them and, and whatever level of love and commitment is appropriate to that relationship, and you've spoken to the problem. You've not tried to just pile on top of them and just act like they're the worst person in the world, but you've spoken to the issue and, and, and helped that in a healthy way that they can discover it and see it and recognize it, owning your stuff along the way, then there's one of two choices that they're going to have at that point. They're either going to have a godly grief or they're going to have a worldly grief. Worldly grief is where even if you've done everything well, they say in their heart, I don't care, I still want it my way. Worldly grief is... They might have sorrow and frustration or grief in their soul, but it's not because they did wrong. It's because you dared to confront them about it. Worldly grief says, I want what I want when I want it. Godly grief says, oh, I messed up. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Worldly grief creates bitterness in our soul. It creates resentment selfishness. Godly grief leads us to repentance, leads us to realize, I messed up, and I don't want to do that again. Godly grief leads us to say, I'm sorry, to own what we've done, not to minimize it. Worldly grief minimizes, oh, you're just, I didn't do all of that, justifies it and defends ourselves and acts like we're the victim. That's worldly grief. Godly grief says, no, I blew it. Forgive me. Thank you for showing me where I was wrong. And reciprocates in that relationship and that commitment. And when that happens, then you and I are able to, step six, is celebrate that repentance. Paul. I didn't read it earlier, but in, in verse 11, he says, See what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Paul is saying, you guys, when you realized what I said and you own that, and even though you felt bad for a while, that grief led you to, to turn away from those things. And it caused you to take good action. It caused you to bring punishment to those who were doing wrong, who were stirring all of this up. It caused them a motivation. It moved you to act in a, an appropriate way. And look at your love and your zeal and your passion that came as a result of that. You see, when you and I back up and give people space to process, space to act, space to make decisions, space to respond, a mistake that sometimes we make, there's a, there's a time when you need to hit on something. There's a time you need to back up and let it, let it, let the person own it, process it, figure it out, and respond. And they're going to go one of those two ways. 
And But when they own the good side of it, then God has used you to bring peace and reconciliation into a relationship together with that person, hopefully help them take that next step in their own relationship with God. If they know Him, it's renewed their relationship with Him. Because, folks, when two people are at odds with each other, Christian people, and there's wrongs going between them, there's also wrongs going between them and God. Like, it's messed up all the way around. But when, when you begin to realize what you need to do, and you approach that person in this way, that brings healing in their life. It heals both of your relationships together, and it brings healing in the relationship to God. Well, Sean, what about when somebody doesn't respond and they're, they don't have a, a godly sorrow that leads to that heart change in their life where they turn away that repentance, turning away from that junk and, and getting it squared away? What if they double down and they're even more resentful, even more angry because I confronted them about this and I talked to them about it and Sean, I did everything right. That will happen often. And in that situation, you have a couple, you've got a decision to make. Do you give them more space to respond? Do you now respond in a different way to that one? Or is there now a wall there that's not your fault because you've done everything you can to remove it? Or do you just allow and realize that they're not going to receive it? You see, we can't ultimately control the way that person responds, can we? And I'm not trying to give you three tricks to manipulate anybody. I'm actually trying to get you to respond as you should before God, to regardless of the outcome, God's blessings on you, and to help you to be a blessing in those relationships, and to give them the best chance to respond well. But even with... Jesus living inside of you and you come to them as you should the most winsomely way that you can and graciously and however to speak into that. If they still are just resentful that you called them out on the carpet, that you sometimes people and even will resent because they know deep down that you're right and they're wrong and they hate being wrong and they hate being called out. That's that worldly sorrow, that worldly grief, and they're unwilling to give it up. In those situations, you're still called to love them, but there will absolutely be a rift in that relationship that it won't be what it could have been. And you've got to deal with it. You've got to live with it. So that will happen often. So these are not. this is not a way to make every one of them work out well, but it is a biblical way that follows from the Bible from beginning to end and what was demonstrated Paul did with us here in 2 Corinthians, that we can work through a lot of that stuff. And our relationships can thrive a whole lot more if we learn how to do this well. You see, guys, at the end of the day, God loved us and sent His Son Jesus to die for us. He confronted us in our sin. But He did it in a way that didn't minimize our sin, but also showed His love and commitment to us, and He dealt with those issues when His Son Jesus died on the cross. And He came. Every person who's a follower of Him, He loves them and accepts them where they are, but He doesn't accept leaving them where they are. God never leaves us in our sin. He saves us, forgives us, and He always pulls us out of that. And in turn, we're to act that same way, that same redemptive kind of way, that same gospel presence in the lives of those around us. And I believe if you and I live this out more, our relationships will be better with 
parents and kids and adult kids and their parents and friends and co-workers addressing the situation well. And regardless of the outcomes of those relationships, you and I can hold our head high, if you will, and know that God's blessing is on us, that we're not a part of the problem, that instead we're being the proverbial cliche part of the solution. So I want to challenge you this morning and this Christmas season, or I guess as we head into the new year, take an inventory in your relationships. Are you willing to engage, take risk? For some of you, you've grown up and had a life habit, I'm guessing, that just said, you know, minimize it and just move on and kind of ignore it, kind of compartmentalize it, stuff it in the closet, move on and hope it gets better. When a person marries someone and that's their their way they've operated and that other person's used to just digging in and working on stuff, there's a huge impasse. There's a huge thing there. So maybe you need to step into that world and be willing to be vulnerable and, and work through it. I don't know exactly what God will be speaking to you this morning. But I know these are truths, guys, that we need pretty much every week of our life because relationships get stunk, get, get, get funky, and stink happens, and we have all kinds of problems that happen every week in our lives. So take these truths to heart. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to close out our service, okay? Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that He did not leave us in our sin, but He came to us. And God, in many ways, we're supposed to turn around and come to others. No, we can't redeem them and we can't save them like He did, like He did us. But Father, we're supposed to demonstrate the same thing, truth, but truth in love. Grace and forgiveness, but grace and forgiveness that deals with the reality. Lord, help us to know how to handle that well in all of our relationships. Help us to know how and when to speak. Lord, help us to process our own heart. I think that, that step two is the hardest of all of just considering our own heart and soul before we begin to, to try to work with someone else. God, how often I and I know others in this room that we have just spoken up and spoken out without really considering what was in our own heart and soul. And we've brought stuff out of the well of our mouth that has not been helpful that has not been holy, that has in turn been hurtful. So God, help us, I pray, to respond well, to be a tool of you in the lives of others in these relationships. Father, I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, if we live this way, the world will be shocked. The world doesn't know how to live in a way that genuinely cares about people, that doesn't just protect itself and is out to get its own. We'll stand, we'll speak in such a way that our light will shine as part of a, just a very practical, simple thing that we can do. But I urge you to take these truths to heart this week and the weeks ahead. God bless you. I pray you have a, a fantastic New Year's Eve and a, a, we'll see you next week. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.